0: Hello everyone, it's August 7th, 2018. This week, NASA reveals the lucky astronauts who will be riding those shiny new dragons and starliners, not as roomy as the space shuttle, but certainly not as cramped as the Soyuz. And the best part is you don't need to learn Russian to fly it and lift off. And we the tower. Welcome to episode 170 of the Orbital Mechanics Podcast. I'm David. I'm Ben. How you doing, David? I'm um, all right. Uh, welcome back again. So, did you have a nice trip to wherever it was? Because we were speculating, and no one knew.
1: Oh, I didn't tell you guys. Yeah, I was was just going uh, across the Oregon border to go see some friends who have a farm.
0: Okay. You made it sound more mysterious than that. I don't know why. Maybe maybe I just read it that way. You're like, I have to go out in the middle of nowhere and meet someone. And I was like, okay, sounds ominous.
1: Yeah. So on on the way up, um, I drove through Reading and you might've heard Reading in the news because it's the car fire is like right outside redding so the car fire at the moment it's 41% contained but it's already consumed 154,000 acres so it's it's huge we drove past it on I-5 going through Reading. At that point, it was still farther back. It was like 15 miles. The closest it came to the highway was like 15 miles. And going through Reading, I mean it was just like it looked apocalyptic. It was it was real mm-hmm. bad. And uh when we came down it was still about the same distance. Now it's you know just a couple of miles from the from the highway and it's inching into like downtown Reading. I mean it's like <laughs> really, really expensive kind of a fire.
0: Yeah, I've never seen a large scale forest fire like it would be kind of neat to see but obviously bad but you know you kind of want to see something like that but i've never because we just don't have fires like that on the east coast i mean we do have some but yeah not usually that bad so why is it called okay so this is confusing probably for listeners it's called the car fire but it's not a car fire right,
1: right c-a-r-r so they name it after like where it starts so i i think it i mean i think it started in a place called whiskey town but it must have started on like land owned by somebody named car
0: or something like that yeah So, yeah. So now it's known as the car fire, which is just really confusing.
1: (laughs) Yeah. It's funny because like, you know, to everybody down here, we're all like primed to when we hear car fire, we don't hear automobile fire. We hear C-A-R-R, but if, you know, if you're not primed, if your brain isn't ready to hear that yet.
0: Yeah. I once saw a very cool car fire. I was at the top of a bridge where I was like going over the bridge and it's a pretty big bridge and I guess a car, there was this car that just couldn't quite make it and something overheated and it was completely on fire. Like it looked like somebody lit a bonfire like underneath it and I think it just melted. I mean, like you don't see fires like that usually with cars. It's just like the engine, but this was the entire car and the guy was just standing outside of his car and I guess waiting for the fire department. Yeah. Uh, And it was it was amazing. It was just like it was like it was in an inferno or something. It was just completely engulfed in flames. And I don't know how that happens. Like I guess it must have just been a very flammable car. Like maybe he was keeping (laughs) some oily rags. (laughs) in the floorboards or something. I don't know.
1: So here, here's my experience. I haven't dealt with that many burned out cars, but like when there's a, a car fire, either it's contained to the engine compartment uh, and the passenger compartment is relatively untouched, or if it spreads into the passenger compartment, the entire interior of the car is gone. I've never seen like a little bit of scorching inside the passenger compartment and nothing else. So, so yeah, I totally understand when you when you're saying that the the entire thing was engulfed in flames. Like, yeah, that's kind of what happens. So, uh back to the to the car fire. So, what's happening right now is We've been experiencing some lower temperatures than we, you know, normally expect. Like, you know, the mornings are really nice and cool here this this last week, and it turns out that it's because there's a jet stream coming down from Alaska, and so it's dumping a bunch of cool air on top of us, but it's also um, bringing all of that smoke from the top of the Sacramento Valley down to Chico, and so for the last week we've had. Um, really really smoky skies and you know to the point where we can't see our mountains which you know normally kind of fill our horizon and what's really weird is this morning um, normally in the mornings i've got light streaming in my window and this morning it's like orangey yellow and it's kind of dim and like it totally feels like a like a star trek alien world set because they always you know screw with the lighting conditions the moon looks really creepy right now when the moon's up at night, it's like blood red. And so, you know, we just had a, a blood moon last weekend, and not only was it, you know, the, you know, fourth uh, or the the second full moon in a month or whatever a blood moon actually is, but it literally was blood red. I mean, it looked it looked really
0: scary. That's with the moon higher up in the sky, right? Because it always looks red when it's yeah. on the horizon, at least in my experience. Yeah,
1: yeah, good point. Yeah, it was it was up in the sky, and it was just. It was red. It, it looked like a like a tomato. I mean, it was really red. So yeah, that that gets us up into space.
0: <laughs> and then from there, I guess we will move on to this week in spaceflight history. And yeah. uh, and I guess we only have uh, two winners. Yeah, two winners.
1: Uh, so the fell knight, who's been uh, guessing a couple times, uh, and then a, a new guesser, hot stuff Pants, which is the whitest Twitter handle of all time. <laughs> Um, So this week in spaceflight history is the 15th of August, 2007. Rick Mastracchio finds a hole in his glove during an EVA. So this took place during STS-118, which visited the ISS. During the launch, 118 uh, had some issues. So the, the launch happened on the 8th of August at 2236 UTC. And during the launch, nine pieces of foam were observed falling off of the ET, the external tank. And three of them were observed hitting... The shuttle itself, and one of those strikes actually caused damage to the HRSI, the high temperature reusable surface insulation, uh, the the black uh, silica replaceable tiles on the on the bottom of the shuttle. And uh, so this area of damage was rear of the right landing gear, and there were two chunks taken off of two adjacent tiles, so one in front and then one in back. And the one in front took most of the damage, and uh, then the the back one just had a, a little bit of damage.
0: You uploaded some images, and yeah, there's definitely some damage on those tiles. And you say that the second photo here is of damage that was caused during landing? No, 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 no. no. So they, they discovered it during the
1: during the rendezvous pitch maneuver where they kind of do a, a full roll in front of the space station to take photos. So the, these photos will be in the show notes as well. The first one is the photo that they took on orbit. The second one is the updated photo that they took once it had landed.
0: Okay. The photo they had taken once it had landed. Okay. Yeah,
1: right, right, right. So you can see that the, the damage is really uh, very similar. There wasn't any real additional damage caused during re-entry, which is a really good sign. But basically they you know took a bunch of photos and they determined that Um, That the damage didn't go all the way through the tile. Um, So there's, you know, like a, a chunk taken out. You can see in the higher resolution and better lit photo from the ground that. It looks like the forward tile that got damaged does have damage that goes all the way through the tile, but then the the back tile or the the aftmost tile um, just has like half of the depth is damaged. So I, I think when they're when they're saying that you know the damage doesn't go all the way through, it was mostly the back tile that they were worried about because that's where most of the heat buildup was going to occur because it's the edge that's exposed to oncoming pressure as opposed to the forward. Uh, tile, all of the faces are facing backwards away from it. So I think that's really what they were worried about.
0: But the shuttle comes in at such an angle that I wouldn't think that would make much of a difference. I mean, that that's clearly a hole. I mean, it looks like one, and I could even see something red underneath. I guess it's whatever, like, you know, mounts the tile to it. Yeah, the felt on the back, yeah. That is a full-on hole, and yet that didn't cause any problems. That, that really surprises well, re- me.
1: Yeah, remember that, you know, even though the shuttle does come out at a high angle of attack, it, you know, the leading edge is where all of that heat is concentrated. Right. And that's where they put the carbon carbon heat shielding, like the really heavy duty stuff on the underbelly. Yeah, there's there's a decent amount of heating, but it's only edges that are exposed you know, mm-hmm. forward. So I, I think that's, that's why they're able to get away with that. Uh, of course, they were considering repairing the tile, um, and, and actually replacing it, but they decided, uh, that it wasn't necessary. And yeah, turns out it wasn't necessary. But what's really cool is they, um, they actually did like flow modeling, you know, like they modeled the shape of this hole. And then, um, I think they probably did some computer modeling, but they also did like actual wind tunnel tests where they like fired plasma at high speed at, at a, you know, a model that they had. Chip some holes in, so yeah, it's it's pretty cool. The amount of you know just intensive study that can go into something like this. I think they said there were like three hundred people involved in making this determination that it was safe to land. Yeah, so so that wasn't you know wasn't an issue. It turns out, and then there was another thing that turns out it wasn't also an issue. So um, they did a bunch of spacewalks, and on the second one, well, actually, actually, a couple of weird things happened on spacewalk. So the second spacewalk, Rick Mastracchio Actually, had a uh, a CO2 alarm go off, and uh, it it turns out it was just an instrumentation failure. They you know did some checking that. Oh yeah, not not a problem. Just reset the alarm and continue on. You know, his hard upper torso is where that instrumentation is is located, and it, you know they didn't even have to really do any repairs, as far as I understand. They just you know reran the same HUT on previous or on a s- successive spacewalks. But uh, on his third spacewalk, they were doing some pretty just a a lot of moving around, but not a lot of heavy duty work. They moved a CETA cart and then they grabbed some antennas and moved them around and installed new antennas. And while they're getting close to the end of the EVA, they, you know, do glove checks, which at this point, I think this was like the second or third uh, set of EVAs where they actually were implementing very intensive uh, glove checks. Um, And of course, nowadays we also uh, check the helmet diaper the uh helmet absorptive absorption device. Absorption not absorptive. Absorptive,
0: yeah. I don't think is the word. Absorptive? No. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right.
1: Um so yeah, now they do glove and glove and hat tests. Um, but back then they just did glove tests. And so uh Rick checks his gloves, and there's there's a hole in his glove. So it's it's on his uh his left thumb. And so if you look at your own thumb, you've you know you've got the joint in the middle. On a spacesuit glove, you don't really have the the luxury of really bending uh, the joint in the middle of your thumb. You can basically oppose your thumb and, and bend it back and forth across your palm, but you, you don't really get that bending in the middle. Um, but if you think of a spot between the two knuckles on your thumb, like right in the middle on the top, kind of facing the, the back of your palm, facing that same direction, there's a, a hole right there. <laughs> And uh, it turns out to just be a hole in the Vectran uh, cover layer, kind of the, uh, the, the outermost layer. And so that's the third, the, the outermost of three layers, right? They've got the pressure bladder on the inside and then the restraint layer in the middle and then the, the Vectran cover on the outside. And it was just, it was just a little tear. So they, they ended up canceling the EVA, just ending it right there. They had been going out for uh, five and a half hours. So it wasn't like they lost a ton of time, Uh, but you know. Thirty minutes to an hour, something like that. They lost. Um, further study showed that it was a it was a tear in the Vectran, not just an abrasion. And so the solution in the future was they uh, they continued using Vectran, but around the thumb and around the forefinger as well. They added what looked like uh, like band aids almost, and they're just a, a Vectran with a much tighter weave, and it's just like a small little belt of of a tighter weave because those. Turn out to be uh, high wear areas where you know you're. If there's something sharp, that's what you're going to grab. They also, you know, tried to find out what exactly. Cause the tear. Um, but the fact of the matter is that the workstations that they were at on this EVA had just a lot of sharp objects. So they couldn't pin down exactly what it was, but you know, it's, it's constantly something that you have to be aware of is making sure that there aren't any burrs or uh, sharp torn edges from meteorite impacts, that kind of thing. But anyway, uh, everything was fine. Um, that was uh, Mastracchio's last EVA. They did a, a fourth EVA on that mission, but it it was not scheduled to include Mastracchio anyway. So he kind of went inside and and called it quits. And of course, the the last EVA and the return of the shuttle were all kind of up in the air um, because there was a lot of a, a lot of scrambling to try to figure out when they were going to bring the shuttle home. Not only because they had to wait and find out whether um, they could actually return home with uh, the tile damage, but also because there was a hurricane moving towards Houston. And if that got too close, they'd either have to land them early and or move uh, mission control to an alternate location.
0: Yeah, that's something that um that uh, I don't think I ever thought about, that if a hurricane approaches Houston or, you know, something happens in Houston, they might have to bring them back because, like, you obviously have to have ground control. Um, it's <laughs> not just Florida that you need to land or, I guess, California. Yeah. Um, but you also need to have, you know, somewhere that's your base of operations that actually is operational i wonder how easy it would be to move that you know um and what would be the first backup site
1: i believe that at least for this mission they were looking at moving it to kennedy uh, you know because they they already have you know a lot of the same kind of equipment that they're going to need you know as far as computers go i I think they were going to move crew but you know if you needed yeah the the people at at kennedy are are trained for launches but at least they're trained on space shuttle systems Quick uh, comment from Delta via 4.3 in the chat. It turns out that um, they also will move mission control to uh, Marshall. So that's, that's ISS mission control. Um, and when Johnson flooded last year, which is like a big deal, uh, Yeah, they they moved to Marshall. So, you know, it sounds like, yeah, you know, of course, there are a couple of different options. But I know that for this particular mission for shuttle, not ISS, for shuttle landing, they were thinking about moving to yeah. Florida. Anyway, there you go. Uh, That's this week in spaceflight history.
0: All right, cool. So what is our clue for next week?
1: All right. Next week in 1960, the clue is imagine just the tiniest, whitest arrow. All
0: right. I'm imagining it not coming up with anything, but that was... <laughs> <laughs> Next week in nineteen sixty, imagine the Imagine just the tiniest, widest arrow. All right. Well, if you think you know what that is in reference to, give us a tweet with the hashtag this week, sF. and good luck. Good luck, everybody. <laughs> So first up in the news, let's talk about this new crew that will be lifting off from American soil. So this is kind of like the biggest news of uh, this week. Front page on on all of the space flight websites. So we now have astronauts that are selected for the Crew Dragon and Starliner. I guess we'll just do a quick rundown of when we're expecting to see these fights happen and who will be on them. Yeah, it's kind of a big data
1: dump, but I mean this is like this is like really interesting and important. So
0: you know it's funny, like upon reading this article or you know just like upon hearing the news like really just seeing the photo, it really did fill me with a kind of excitement because it was like this is actually or it felt like this is actually finally happening. I mean, it is just, you know, a... It's more than anything just a what do they call it? A press something? What do you call that? A press junket almost, but not quite. But still, just to see them all up there and knowing that they're going to be inside a Dragon or a Boeing Starliner, that's neat because its it was, what, 2011 yeah. when the last shuttle was, I think? That's We're going on eight or nine years.
1: Certainly eight years, probably, probably. I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if it lapsed over into 2020.
0: So first we have the flight tests. I guess no particular order. We have uh, the Boeing uncrewed flight test, which will be in late 2018 or uh, in early 2019. Then the crewed flight test will be in mid 2019. SpaceX, pretty similar, uh, but they do seem to have a more exact date. And for some reason, I don't know why, but they're calling it the demo. Is that just because they're a private company and they're just sort of like demonstrating? Because that's one thing that very much struck me is the different wording here. It's not a flight test. It's a demo.
1: Yeah, well, SpaceX is co- always called theirs you know, demo flights. It was Falcon Heavy demo, it was Dragon demo, COD's demo. So like, yeah, I think it's just, you know, internal nomenclature choices.
0: Maybe that's all it is, yeah. Uh, So that first uncrewed demo will be in November of 2018, or that's when it's expected. And the crude demo... Uh, will be in April of 2019. So those are the timetables we have now, and you know, I know we've discussed it a whole bunch of times, and it keeps on changing. So
1: yeah, I, I would even I would even say that you know this is when they are currently scheduled. <laughs> like you know, there we we are likely to see delays. Like
0: oh said. yeah, for sure.
1: Then the other big news is that yeah, we got astronauts assigned to all of these flights. So right now they have two people assigned to every flight except for Starliner's first. Crude test flight. I believe the plan is to fill out each of these with a, a third person. So there, there are three more people to be selected, but they'll be selected by ISS partner countries. So I think we're going to have some international folks on some of these flights. I don't know if that's just the first missions or if they will also fly international partners on the test flight. So we earlier we mentioned uncrewed flight and then the crewed flight. And so this is the crewed flight and then the first mission to ISS after that, which is interesting. I don't know why they wouldn't just fly. Oh, I see. Okay, so I've misunderstood this. So uh, Space News says NASA officials didn't state why a three-person crew would be flying on the Starliner test flight. The agency announced an agreement earlier this year with Boeing to study turning that crude test flight into an operational mission, in the event of further commercial crew delays. So, Starliner is possibly going to be flying to ISS the first, you know, on their first test mission, and then uh, uh, international partners are not going to fly on the first mission; they will fly on uh, future missions after that. So, I, I misunderstood that.
0: But there will still be some additional crew, just not international partners, or just not at no, all? No, no,
1: no, not, no, no, I think, I think this is the finalized list, and I think that the reason that Starliner's test flight gets three people is because there's a possibility that they might be going to ISS, even though that hasn't been stated explicitly.
0: Okay, well, that clarifies that, hopefully, if we have it all right.
1: <laughs> yeah, hope, hopefully I haven't got that wrong the second time, but I, I think that's right.
0: Okay, yeah, and it looks like on each of these flights, there is, of course, at least one veteran astronaut, and on several of them, we have this new crew that was just selected in 2013, there are three of them that were selected in 2013 that have never been to space. So that's interesting. And uh, Chris Ferguson, who is, you know, of course, a veteran, he flew the very last shuttle mission. Um, and he is currently retired from NASA, which really surprised me. So he, I guess it didn't surprise me because I knew that he was, you know, doing stuff with Boeing. But yeah, he is a full on retired NASA astronaut, but apparently not a retired astronaut because he is... (laughs) He is... uh... Sure, yeah. Yeah, so according to and i'm just reading from the boeing website he he is their first test pilot astronaut there have been civilian astronauts in the past but he is a test pilot astronaut has there been any of those that have worked for exclusively private companies
1: no private company has yet put a human into space or in, into orbit so
0: well but their hardware has so yeah right?
1: would uh, well right but i mean there there were contractors who built you know uh, Apollo was built by contractors but it doesn't mean that it's a privately you know designed and funded and built spacecraft It's just that it was contracted out
0: So that's cool so that makes this sort of a milestone you know he's a test pilot for a private entity that's just said you know that just basically has a test pilot on hand and says, yeah, we'll put him up there you don't need to use your own astronauts even though of course he was one of I mean he was a NASA astronaut so uh, it's not far off.
1: yeah so so it's interesting because yeah um, we, we knew that Chris Ferguson was going to fly on this flight. A long time ago, right? Because I mean, this this is kind of what he signed up to do with with Boeing. Is you know, he he pretty much designed Starliner, uh, or you know, had a heavy hand in it. And so we knew that that was going to happen. And it's interesting that you know SpaceX is. SpaceX doesn't have a a person in particular to do this. They're like, well, our thing flies itself. So we don't, you can put whoever in there Mm and we don't care. So I think that might be the the difference that you're getting at, right?
0: So does does that mean that SpaceX would never need to hire any kind of a test pilot? Because I thought that maybe that would be the final proof, but... You don't really need people to prove that a person can survive the flight.
1: Yeah, not not these days you don't.
0: I find that slightly disappointing because I kinda wish SpaceX had its own astronauts, but I guess it just doesn't need them.
1: They'll they'll need them when they need, you know, human power in space to to build something or to do something, but just for testing spacecraft, no. Yeah. So just like a, a good quote to kinda follow up on that. One of the astronauts that's flying on the crew dragon test flight is Robert Benkin. He was on a call with um, with Bridenstine, and he said, "It is absolutely like flying the iPhone." He said, "I look forward, sir, to you getting down here at some point in Hawthorne, and maybe you can sit next to us in the cockpit and go through flying the iPhone to dock to huh. the
0: space station." It does have a very iPhone-looking interior. It's just beautiful.
1: Well, and it, you know, it's very much like, hey, you, you press a button and it goes. You know, you don't need don't it. so anyway. It's yeah. So so the whole thing about you know, you don't necessarily need a, mm-hmm. a person in there. Yeah. It's, yeah. It's, it's
0: so I guess cool. what. He he's saying is it just works <laughs> I hate hate that phrase so much. I kind of do too.
1: Yeah. Um, So the other person that I I really think is worth mentioning is Sunita. Sunita Williams is flying on the first Starliner mission, not the test flight, but the first mission. And she's the only, I, I believe she's the only ISS commander on this list. I don't know if anybody else here has actually commanded the ISS other than Chris Ferguson. She's the most experienced person in this list. She's flown the same number of missions as Chris Ferguson And she also... Has flown more spacecraft because she also flew a Soyuz.
0: So for the class of 2013, right? I think that's what we can call yeah. them. So yeah, we have a uh, Nicole Anapuman Man or Man. I'm not sure how to pronounce her name. It's probably Anapuman. Man. and then a uh, Josh Casada. Not not sure how to pronounce that one either. C A S S A D A. Yeah, I think it's yeah, Casada. Josh Casada and Victor Glover. So those are the three people who were selected in 2013. Yeah. The total astronaut class. I don't remember how many there were, but there were like obviously more than this. Um, but these are just the first ones to fly these first, you know, few missions so it's it's really exciting to see all of these just these new astronauts I mean it feels like beginning again or something but that's not necessarily a bad thing I don't know these feel like millennial astronauts and some of them might actually be I don't think that they are but that'd be cool if they were
1: so the youngest I think is 34 well, I think that would qualify yeah from that class Christina Hammock was 34 so you you might call her uh, a millennial so. Yeah. But a bunch of people all from different branches of the military, except for Chris Ferguson, everybody who's flying. Oh, Chris Ferguson and Sunita Williams, other than the two like vets, everybody who's flying was selected in 2000 or later. Everybody that has space flight experience has flown on two flights, except for Michael Hopkins, who's only uh, flown on one flight. And then there are what, two, three people, sorry, all, all three from 2013 obviously haven't flown. I guess not, obviously, because they could have flown on a, on a
0: Soyuz. So the, the astronauts that were selected in 2013, none of them have flown on Soyuz, right? That's correct, yep. But as far as Crew Dragon, what will that test flight entail?
1: Yeah, no, uh, Delta V in the chat says it's uh, a really short duration, if I remember correctly, and I, I believe. Uh, I believe I agree with that, if I remember correctly. <laughs>
0: Let's do some short and sweet now, just two this weekend. What is our first one?
1: Right, first up, Starliner needs a minor design change. So last week, we discussed the propellant leak during the stand test in June. Uh, Further updates from the company indicate that operational changes aren't sufficient and that a minor redesign will have to be implemented to ensure that the propellant valves can be closed reliably. Uh, At about the same time, a pad abort test delay was announced and is now expected to take place next spring.
0: And next up, SLS Core Stage gets rid of its waxy buildup. During a quality control inspection back in February, Boeing discovered the tubing in the engine section of its core stage contained a lot of residual wax, which was used in the manufacturing process to prevent crimping of the tubes while bending. Decontamination of the tubing has now been completed. Additionally, the COPV helium tanks for the first stage have been integrated. The core stage's LOX tank will also soon be added. The current estimation for first launch of SLS now sits at mid-2020. We're looking at it. Questions, comments, and correction burns. And this week we just have one little clarification, not really a correction note, because uh well I guess was, this was two weeks ago. We were talking about the Parker Solar Probe and uh how hot the sun gets at various, I guess, altitudes.
1: Yeah, so this is this is very much like planetary physics. Well, you know, solar physics, but like very not what us granted we're still lay people, but like it's not what we are super like reading all the time. And so, you know, occasionally <laughs> A PhD will write in and and give us more information. So, but anyway, so yeah. So uh, Dr. Peter Zink wrote in, he actually works um, at Boston University in their department of mechanical engineering. So he's very much kind of our kind of person.
0: So I I don't remember quite what you said, but I remember me saying that I thought that the corona was hotter than what was underneath it, and this does confirm that I didn't know what the temperatures were, but I just remember that there was this weird fact about the sun that the corona was actually hotter. So he sent us a link uh, to an article on phys.org, and so just to be clear, the corona gets up to about 2 million degrees Fahrenheit, while just 1,000 miles below, it says, the surface simmers at a balmy 10,000 degrees, which is mind-boggling. The Part that I don't get is that, as far as I understand, Parker Solar Probe will be flying through the corona, right? Mm -hmm. If the temperature is about 2 million degrees, now obviously it has a sun shield, but can it withstand those temperatures? We're talking about, you know, like obviously directly radiated heat from the sun.
1: I think the key here is that the corona can spike up to 2 million degrees Fahrenheit. But that doesn't necessarily mean that it's always at two thousand degrees Fahrenheit. The weird thing is that the farther, aw- like the corona gets hotter farther away from the sun. Mm-hmm. So obviously, at some point, it cools it down. Cools back
0: down again. You yeah. Know, at
1: the very extremes, but like as you're going up from the surface, it gets hotter and hotter and hotter. And yeah, so uh, Parker Solar Probe is absolutely going into the corona.
0: But specifically, probably just the outer region, so that it doesn't get. So yeah, okay, that makes sense. Yeah, that's a good clarification. It's not flying fully through it. It's more like grazing the outer edge. Would, would that sound more accurate? Uh,
1: so its perihelion is 6 million kilometers. It might be more helpful to talk about the distance in terms of sun radii. So the radius of the sun is half a million kilometers. The diameter of the sun is like almost one, one 1.5 million kilometers. So 1.5 million kilometers for the diameter and the parker solar probe is is going within what like 6 million kilometers of the surface so we're we're talking like two and a half solar radii away from the surface so i think that gives a much a much better way to to visualize what we're talking about cuz you know people have seen like images of the corona and how it sticks out from the surface of the sun like quite a distance um. So this is going to be like grazing the,
0: yeah, the top of the corona. That solves it for me. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but it, it still doesn't explain why the corona is actually hotter as you move up away from the surface yeah, of the sun. Yeah, and
1: nobody knows. Like that's one of the unanswered questions is we don't know. And that's what the Parker Solar Probe is in, intended to help solve.
0: Yeah, because that is a strange, strange mystery. All right, let's move on to upcoming spaceflight events, and we have the perfect first launch coming up here. Um, is the launch of Parker Solar Probe aboard a Delta IV Heavy. According to LaunchLibrary.net, I like how they put this up uh, flying into the sun's atmosphere, or corona, for the first time, coming closer to the sun than any previous spacecraft. So, that's pretty neat. And I guess, obviously, you are going to need a heavy lift launch vehicle for that. So, we have the Delta IV Heavy, and that'll be launching from Space Launch Complex 37 b at Cape Canaveral, and that's on August 11th. And the window for that is uh, 0748 UTC through 0833 UTC. So almost an hour, well, about like 45 minutes.
1: Our next show comes out on the 14th, but I'm going to read an event for the next day just so that, you know, we get a little more warning here. So August 15th at 1115 in the morning, Eastern time, coverage of Russian spacewalk number 45 is beginning. So coverage begins at 1115. I. Eastern time. The spacewalk is scheduled to begin around 11:58 AM Eastern time. And this is going to be almost a seven hour spacewalk. And I feel like on this show, we don't get to cover or we, we don't get, uh, or we don't include Russian spacewalks in upcoming spaceflight events super often. I feel like I don't get a lot of forewarning on those guys. Uh, but here you go. We got one this time.
0: <laughs> awesome. Alrighty. So those are your upcoming spaceflight events. All right. And that is it for this week. So time to de-orbit the show. And we will cue the Ronald Jenkins music, most of which is brought to you by him. Check him out at RonaldJenkins.com. And some of which is brought to you by Tim Dodd, the everyday astronaut.
1: If you liked this episode, please review us on iTunes and Stitcher.
0: And if you enjoyed our show, please consider supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com orbitalpodcast. Thanks to our $5 and up Patreon supporters in the Ground Control chat room listening to the show live. You can
1: connect with us on Twitter and Reddit at orbitalpodcast.
0: You can send questions and comments to info at theorbitalmechanics.com.
1: For more information on this episode, such as show notes and other links, please visit our website at theorbitalmechanics.com. Be sure to check out our store for mission patches, t-shirts, and hoodies.
0: So that is it, and we will see you next week on Orbit. Until then, later. Goodbye, everybody.